I love growth. <laughs> I will say that I am I am a growth junkie. So spending the last year navigating and, and figuring out how to block and tackle and do all the things we needed to do to survive. Great. Like I learned so many things, but now that we're back on the front foot, now that we have momentum and our strategies are working and we're months away from opening Sephora and I have more opportunities, it's really, really energizing. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. For Michelle Goss, the CEO of leading American department store Kohl's, the pandemic has delivered many lessons about the importance of decisive and inclusive leadership. But as you just heard her mention, preparing the company for growth and the recovery, starting with a major partnership with cosmetics brand Sephora, is where her passion truly lies. Today, she shares her experiences over the past year with our senior partner, Sajal Kohli who's based in Chicago and leads our firm's global retail and consumer packaged goods practice. Their conversation took place during a virtual event we recently hosted, featuring conversations with the CEOs of leading businesses from around the world. In today's session, Michelle discusses how the company rapidly expanded its omni-channel strategy, how those moves have positioned it to both navigate the pandemic and outperform in the new world of retail. Here is Sajal. Well, Michelle, welcome. True pleasure to uh, have this conversation with you. And maybe before we get into it, uh, I'll share a little bit about you and hopefully not embarrass you. Uh, so Michelle Goss is the CEO of Kohl's, where she oversees close to 1,200 stores in terms of a physical footprint, a very large and growing e-commerce business, and with over 100,000 associates across the country. A little bit about Michelle's history and, and her journey. She's has sort of more than 30 years of experience in the retail and consumer goods industries. She began her career with Procter & Gamble and spent more than 16 years with Starbucks, holding a variety of leadership positions, both in the U.S. and internationally. She then joined Kohl's as chief customer officer in 2013, was named CEO in May of 2018, and she is now one of 41 and hopefully growing fast female CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. But behind all of this, uh, Michelle is actually an engineer by training, but a marketer, business builder, brand builder, and a growth steward by choice and by record. She recently set a very bold new vision for Kohl's to be the most trusted retailer of choice for the active and casual lifestyle. During her tenure, she's led the transformation of the company and tons and tons of efforts becoming a leading omnichannel retailer. She's brought in and elevated notable national brand partnerships evolved Kohl's loyalty program into an industry-leading platform, and as a champion of just driving continuous reinvention for the future, which is, I think, back to her roots of engineering, she's forged new partnerships with very iconic companies such as Amazon and Sephora that have disrupted the industry quite meaningfully. So let's just start with the pandemic and dealing with the crisis. Obviously, brick-and-mortar retail has been severely hit as a sector, and it's been hit really hard. Talk to us a little bit about how Kohl's has responded and how you've been operating differently, and how has the speed of change, unprecedented change, really impacted the organization? Well, first, Sajal, it is an absolute honor to be here with you, and it's a privilege for me to do what I do every single day. I guess what I would do is go back to what was going on in the world just one year ago today. You mentioned in the introductory remarks, we have 1,200 stores across the entire country, and on 
March 20th, I did something that never in my wildest imagination would I would have envisioned, which was closing all 1,200 stores on a day, at the time, 75% of our revenue, instrumental for us generating cash flow within a nanosecond as someone who has run businesses and really been so focused on growth and the P&L and the income statement to pivot to studying cash flow statements like a small business. I mean, it just, it, it was surreal, honestly, when I think back to that time. Now, I'd say the punchline for Kohl's a year later is we are a much stronger company and we have many more opportunities than we'd ever imagined. So there's such a dichotomy from the kind of, of fear that one has when you're closing stores and you're frankly ensuring that you have enough cash to survive it. And sitting here today with all these tremendous opportunities, a few of which I'm sure we'll, t- we'll talk about and you highlighted in your opening remarks. I think there's various stages of what the year, last year has represented in terms of lessons learned. It really is a, in a, it's a phenomenal leadership test on so many levels, um, a vision of resilience, of conviction, of decisiveness. And when that all happened so quickly, we quickly landed on it was, we're going to be talking about two key priorities which is how to maintain the financial health of the company. That's priority number one. And right there with it, there wasn't a 1A or 1B. It's like one in one. How do we ensure the health and safety of our people and our customers? No playbook. And within hours, we had to to actually address it. So how the team came together, galvanized, nothing else mattered. And I was so incredibly impressed with the leadership, the fortitude, the conviction, and the collaboration. And it wasn't about my area versus your area. It was give and take. I think at times like this, you cannot underscore the importance of communication and transparency. We have 100,000 associates across the country that are working. You know, Yes, we have, call it 3,000 3, or so here at corporate, but the majority of our employees are dispersed. And at that time, this was not just a business issue. It was a human issue. And I was thinking about our associates going, what is going on? They're seeing retailers close their stores. I'm a store associate. Okay. Is, am I going to hear that the store is being closed and is that permanent or what have you? So my instinct was I got to get in front of them. And, um, you know, I, I'm a, I'm someone who, who had always prided myself, I guess, in communication and doing quarterly town halls and having those videotaped. But within a matter of hours, it's like, I got to go live and telegraph that across the entire company. And so the technology team figured it out March 16th, when frankly, I didn't have a lot of the answers. Um, I got up in front of thousands of our associates and said, here's what I know. Here's how we're addressing it. But it was really important for me in that moment to demonstrate a sense of calm and clarity and say, I don't have all the answers, but I tell you, I'm going to be with you on this journey. And, um, and I'm going to tell you what I know. I ended up doing weekly broadcast videos for weeks. I mean, through the, the core of the pandemic and, um, and it, you know, there were times it was really tough when I had to message, we were furloughing 85,000 associates because our stores were going to be closed a while. There were moments of excitement when I got to share, we were reopening our stores. So while I no longer do those weekly, I still do those monthly. They've become a really important engagement and communication tool for me connecting with thousands of associates across the company. 
So let's let's fast forward, Michelle. I don't think the dust ever settled in the last 12 months, but as things got a little bit more, quote unquote, stable, how did you think about strategy then? Did you think about repivoting? Absolutely. So to your point, I don't think the dust has settled yet, <laughs> but, yes. um, but there was a point from oh my God, nobody knows what COVID-19 is and we ever going to reopen stores and how do we get enough PPE and all that. Once that piece of it got more solid and, you know, candidly, a big moment for us was on May 7th when we started reopening our stores. And once some level of, I don't even call it normalcy because it was, it was far from that, but we were back in running our business. You know, I, I had to ask the question to myself, like, okay, what is the world going to look like on the other side of this? And I can't imagine, given what just happened, the shockwave that just went through the world, that we're coming out and it's back like 2019. But we took that time to take a step back and said, what is the consumer going to be like as we emerge from this? What are going to be the marketplace dynamics? Where can Kohl's carve out a reason to exist? And we used that time to take a step back and really tighten and focus our strategy And what I would say is we were on a uh, more of an incremental journey, I think, to move ourselves out of the department store space into a new space. And we had categories like active that were doing really well. And what we saw with the consumer is, I mean, the couple trends I'd point to is number one, a lot of people at home, they're dressing more comfortably, they're dressing more casually. So the active trend couldn't have been more relevant. And we saw that on our business. It was one of our top performing businesses. But then we said, well, really, who really owns that space fully for the family? people aren't going to revert back. And while, yes, there'll be occasions to go out and travel and what have you, people are going to want to be comfortable. Coles is already a casual destination. Let's actually make that a much bigger part of our business and really be known. Like We don't want to be thought of as a department store. We want to be thought of more of a lifestyle concept. I would say almost a specialty concept where I can get everything I need for my active and casual lifestyle. And that includes casual apparel and footwear, certainly includes active, athleisure, outdoor, And I think importantly, to be more relevant on an everyday basis, it includes categories like wellness and beauty. So so we really kind of pivoted our category vision to focus and amplify those categories and do some things we hadn't done in the past, Agile. We exited a bunch of brands that were downtrending. We're exiting categories. So it's not just what you add, it's what you delete to be much more focused. And so we leveraged the time during the pandemic to accelerate those moves. So I'd say that's one. Second thing clearly is the adoption of digital. And this is interesting for us because we all recognize that, you know, again, once people understand the ease and convenience of digital, they're not going to go back to completely if they were just store only, but there is going to be a role for stores in the future. So, you know, we said to ourselves, how do we really set ourselves up as a winning omnichannel retailer? And so turning things on like curbside very quickly, I mean, candidly, that was a huge benefit for us from a capacity standpoint and getting customers still familiar with going to the store, leaning into digital while the stores were closed. But more importantly, we want customers to shop both channels. And one of the things we've learned is customers are shopping both channels. They're four to six times more productive. So, and, um, you know, as we ultimately talk about beauty and Sephora taking advantage of, and that was also a huge move that we were able to make over the course of the pandemic was to cement this game-changing partnership with Sephora, which will fundamentally transform the entire experience in the store. And then the last piece I would mention is value. And value has always been important. It's always been part of the DNA of the company. But we saw the opportunity where the consumer's going around, I want simpler value 
how do I get to the end price sooner? Maybe the gamification of Kohl's. You know, understand that while that can be fun for the really experienced coal shopper, it can be daunting for the new customer. So we're we're repivoting and and not going swinging the pendulum, but offering value more quickly through investing in things like price and delayering coupons. So I guess to sum it up, it's a big pivot on categories into this active wellness, beauty lifestyle. It's elevating ourselves as being a winner in omni-channel with awesome stores complemented with digital and then being more relevant in value. Yeah, that's fascinating. So you actually had a pretty robust and a strategy that was getting a lot of traction in 2018, 2019. And then the pandemic hits. You know, we all get wedded to our strategies, right? We kind of see this across companies all the time. How did you help de-bias what people were holding on to pre-pandemic to then make these pivots? Because the buckets that you mentioned were pretty hard pivots. You know, I'd say the biggest answer to that, Sajal, on how to, how to pivot people's frame of mind, the pandemic really did. It was cultural. When everything changes, right? Like in an instant, the world changed around us. The company changed. They had to do things they'd never done before. I think about our merchants going in and slashing billions of dollars of receipts, going to vendors asking for longer payment terms, right? I mean, we're a $20 billion company. We've never had to do that. And we're cash generative. It basically allows you to question everything. One digression for a moment, which I think has also been a big learning, Sajal, during the pandemic, which is continuing, is how business leaders and CEOs really came together. CEOs that were like my you know, direct competition, we are together talking in circles about how we are navigating, what we're learning and how we're going to reopen. I mean, it just changed everything. And, and those relationships actually have continued. So that, that has been also a great silver lining. So, I mean, it was really taking advantage of this horrible time, right? The pandemic had so much devastation, but from a cold standpoint, yes, keep our people safe, number one priority. But now let's actually think about how we can take advantage of the marketplace disruption. So at the end of the day, because everything changed, we could just lean right in it. And it wasn't a hard sell to people. They were like, okay, we get it. We can do anything. Look what we're doing right now. We just closed our stores, opened our stores, got cash. We're generating cash again. Like, bring it on. We can change the world. And, and that power and that passion was really palpable through this process. So can I, I, I want to pick up a couple of things from what you just said. So you've always been a big believer in stores, right? And physical footprint as a true competitive advantage. And then now you juxtapose that with all the disruption that was actually happening pre-pandemic too with the digital disruptors, et cetera, what was happening to department stores. As you look forward, how do you think this mix is going to evolve for Kohl's in terms of bricks and mortar and digital? And also given the fact that, you know, for lots of folks in categories that you are in, digital sales are less profitable than, you know, store sales, unless if you get to an omni-channel consumer. So how, how... how do you think this is going to evolve or what's the stake in the ground you're putting for coals going forward in terms of mix of channels? So if you look at 2020, included in a big chunk of time where our stores were closed um, in the middle of the year, I mean, our, our digital penetration was in the order of like 40%, right? It was a huge part of our business. I think there's a level of that that's just going to stick. Now, as we lap that even this year, right? Clearly, some of that penetration is going to be impacted, I'd say, in a, in a, in a good way to balance it out. But I don't think, Sajal, we're going back to a 25% digital penetration. And I could see us ultimately leveling out at somewhere around 40%. I should also put in there that I think 
that the role of brick and mortar has been underestimated out there. And I think there's just going to be a hunger for people to go back to, I mean, I know restaurants and travel and all that, but also shopping. I mean, shopping isn't just transactional, right? It's entertaining. You get to touch and feel product. And so we are positioned from an omni-channel. We're off mall. We've got all these new digital capabilities. And then the product is going to be relevant. But I would also say in a key part of our strategy, I talked about the growth part of our strategy, but as important was for the team to come together and figure out a margin expansion strategy. Now, some of those growth things I talked about, like the pricing promo, actually has a nice margin benefit. But we have put a lot of resource and attention on how we can mitigate some of those headwinds. And and cost of shipping isn't the only one. You have wage pressures. There's always pressures on a business. But I think through this process, again, by looking at everything with a fresh perspective, we're identifying lots of opportunities. And when we took our strategy public, we actually chose not to put a sales number out there. We're going to grow. Now, you know, crystal ball, how, how, how big is that going to be? I don't know, right? I think if you would have told me a year ago that we'd be building 850 Sephora doors, you know, like what we could hang our hat on is that irregardless of how big our sales go, we're at least going to get back to a seven to 8% operating margin. It could even be higher. We're not going to constrain ourselves. We have great conviction. We have to, to actually share that with our investor base. And we have very discrete initiatives that build that bridge from a gross margin standpoint to offset cost of shipping. Within logistics, there's tremendous opportunity today. I mean, it's a very complex ecosystem because we ship from all of our stores, from 15 distribution centers. People order multiple things. You might get multiple packages. doesn't take a rocket scientist to say that's really expensive. So how do you bundle those things more effectively? How do you do more dynamic allocation? So we're just seeing opportunities left and right to make sure that as we grow our business, we can do that in a much more profitable way. It's like you know, living a decade in a year, right? In terms of the change here. Yeah. Michelle, I, I know you're passionate about this topic. You've been public about it, et cetera. So it's one thing to be resilient and adapt and react to this pandemic unprecedented. But a big part of this, what enables all of this is just talent and culture. And I know you're really passionate about it. You've talked about it a lot you know, publicly. Talk us through that. Like, How has the culture pivoted? How are you making that shift? So it is something I'm very passionate about because at the end of the day, you can have these bold visions of transforming digital and stores and categories, but it's ultimately the army of our associates who are going to get the job done from every level, from how you curate product, develop product, logistically get it to stores or someone's home and then then serve the customer. And so everybody really has to believe in the mission and the vision. I'd go back to what I said earlier. I think communication is so critical. So whether it's times of crisis and you're bringing that sense of clarity and calm, or it's times of optimism and we're pointing to the future. I think overall, a CEO, a leader needs to show up with a level of optimism and belief and confidence. Because if you're not showing up with a glass half full, why would anyone want to follow you? I mean, so even in the toughest of times, showing that that hope, that belief and bringing people along is so critical. And there's a part for me, but candidly, you know, I'm only one piece in this whole ecosystem. It, it, has, to, it has to permeate. Really, ultimately, if I think about the biggest part of our associate base, it's our stores. Those store managers 
they have to believe. And I'm so proud of the culture. It's always been a great culture. It's one of the reasons I came to Kohl's because I, I saw it and I felt it. I came from a great culture at Starbucks. But this has changed us and changed us for the better. So this engagement, this communication, I'd say today we are a much more decisive culture. Mm. And when I think about um, effective teams, effective strategies, and certainly I've seen this over time and seen it in my own backyard here, I think what can frustrate teams is when they leave a room and there's not a decision. And, oh, get that piece of data and come back. We'll get that piece of data and come back. Well, you know what? 90% of the time, that next piece of data isn't going to actually change the decision. And most great decisions, you know, yeah, they're informed by facts, but there's a lot of like, we're going to take a risk. And it's, it's kind of that balance of where we see the bright light, the intuition, the, the white space. And like I said, informed by the facts and data you have. So I feel like the biggest gift I can give a team is making a decision when they're in the room. Mm-hmm. And I think, again, the, and, and that takes confidence. And it also, you have to also ensure that as a leader, if there's a mistake made or a risk or something doesn't play out as expected, they're being celebrated. They're not being penalized. But what the pandemic did, I believe, for a lot of people who maybe hadn't had enough failures under their belt, and I guess I've had the privilege of having plenty of failures, so I know you come out the other side. And ultimately, as the, as the saying goes, right, if you're not failing enough, you're not pushing hard enough, but actually giving our leaders that experience and being forced to make those big decisions in the moment. Because if you're not making the decision, something bad's going to happen because we're in the middle of a crisis. So I think they felt really empowered. And so taking that same decisiveness, that agility, but applying that not just in a time of crisis, but in a time of growth and innovation. So I think that's been a big one for us, agility and that spirit of courage and innovation. So Michelle, let me talk about women CEOs and I want to talk about diversity, which I know is also another big area of passion for you. You're one of 41 CEOs in Fortune 500 companies, and I hope the, my, my personal passion to the number just explodes exponentially. But you've made some pretty important appointments, right? Your CFO is a woman. Your CSO is a woman. Speak a little bit first, maybe personally, about what has it been for you as a female leader moving up to CEO role? And then how have you translated that in terms of, sort of diversity and inclusion at goals? Sure. Well, first, since you asked it, just my own personal experience. Again, if you would have asked me 30 years where I thought I'd be, I'd never <laughs> have guessed this. <laughs> you know. So first of all, you just don't wave a magic wand. I mean, people work hard. I mean, I, I have worked hard in my career. And first, you got to get the job done. And you throw your passion in it. And it's got to be something you love and you're good at. And if you ever find a day where those things aren't aligning, then it's time to move on. And so, you know, I've not been Sagittal, someone that I have felt that I've had unique barriers along my career. I'd say for anybody, what's really important is to learn from others, to be a vulnerable servant leader, to seek out mentors. And sometimes too, that mentorship word can be daunting. You know, I, I think about them as coaches. I think about advisors. A lot of that I believe is peer to peer. I mean, yes, it can be, it can be up, but even, even can be down. I mean, I, I learn a lot from store managers when I'm in stores and I've been so inspired, especially with the stories. I met the store manager down in South Carolina and we were visiting the store. We're talking about everything. He's so proud of his team. And then he starts like interviewing me, Sajal, with what it's like to be a CEO and what have been my most exciting moments. I'm like, wait, I'm in an interview. He was great. 
So then I turned the table on him because I think one of his questions was, you know, what was was your most memorable moment ever as a CEO? I actually answered it and I said, I'm living it right now. Like, but then I flipped it to him and I said, well, John, what's been your most memorable moment? And uh, he said, well, there's really two. He said, one was the evening on March 19th when I shut the store, closed the door, and I did not know when I was going to reopen. And then on May 7th, he said, when I got to come to work and I put the key in and I turned the key and I got to welcome my team back, he said, I will never, ever forget that. In that moment, I said, you know, I've always felt like it's such a privilege and a gift to be what I do today. And then I think about, you know, my responsibility to make sure that this company not only survives, but thrives because that is a story in that moment I will, I will never forget. I also do, do recognize there, there are issues out there. There are unconscious biases. And last year was a wake-up call for the country. I'd say it was a wake-up call for me personally, recognizing that we have to make that a bigger priority so that everyone has an equal opportunity and has equity to achieve their dreams. And as I've gotten more educated, I do see where the gaps are. You know, I start with my own team. You mentioned it. Um, I'm very proud of the fact that um, I was able to promote a female into the CFO job in fall of 2019. And I know you said the number 41 is pretty low. When you actually look at the number of CEO, CFO, female pairs, it's a very, very low number. And I, and I do hope that that number also changes. Brought in a really talented, diverse female leader to lead our strategy efforts. Um, it's really important. And I, it feels a little cliche to say it, but you know, people do look at the top, right? And you have to role model it. So if my table isn't getting more diverse, but I'm saying all this, they're not going to believe me. They're not going to do it. And so I myself am putting a big priority. I'd speak to our board. I'm really proud that since I've been CEO, we've brought more diversity on the board and um, it's making us a better board because it's not just about doing the right thing, by the way. I mean, it is the right thing, but it's also really good for business. I mean, having different points of view around my board, around my leadership table is getting us to a better place. And then I'd say companies and and, uh, organizations, they, they go after what we tell them is important. So it was really important for me to turn the DNI strategy almost like an initiative because we're really good at launching initiatives. So we created a task force. I'm at the chair of the task force. It's also not an HR initiative. It has to be from across the company. So this task force meets every other week and we have a blueprint and it's about our people and talent. It's about our customers and it's about our communities. And then we have a set of goals and KPIs and initiatives and they report out. A lot of times people think about diversity as your employee base. That's huge for us. We're making big progress, but we need to be more relevant to a diverse set of customers. So we're changing our product assortments to be more relevant. We're changing our advertising to be more relevant. And in the communities, I mean, it is, we've evolved um, our giving strategy to ensure that we are being really balanced. But I'd say one of the biggest things we can do is how we buy product. And so we've set bold goals on how we can change our vendor base and double our minority and diverse vendors. Can I just open up the aperture a little bit and connect this to just corporate responsibility? Tons of stuff happening in the world that even though you might be a, in a US-based business, you actually have so much global reach. If I think about your sourcing strategy and you know uh, things like that. How do you think about corporate responsibility in this world of you know, 
geopolitical tension, you know, globalization, tariff, trade wars, technology disruption. I would start by saying, as a CEO, you have lots of stakeholders. <laughs> you, know, you have your associates, you have your shareholders, um, you have your vendors and, and brand partners. So we've published objectives, 2025 goals that we're holding ourselves accountable to. I'm really proud that we're getting recognized by global organizations like Ethisphere as one of the most ethical companies multiple years in a row and, and a very short list of American retailers who are on that list. And the last thing I would say on that is, you know, I, I believe more and more it's important for customers and all of our stakeholders, but if I think about the customer, to know we're doing these things because they're mm-hmm. more and more making brand choices based on how companies are thinking about responsibility. And that's that's only that's only increasing. And I, you know, I know sometimes in the past people would say, well, that's just that's the millennials, but this demographic doesn't care as much, or will they really put their money where their mouth is? I, I tell you they are. And it's 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 across all demographics. It's the right thing to do. And for us, from a brand relevancy, from a business standpoint, it's also important. So Michelle, what do you most enjoy about being a CEO? You've, you've lived through this pandemic, but like what gets you most jazzed about the role? I mean, there's no question. It's, it's the people, it's the culture, it's the energy, it's the possibility. If you start with, with people and talent, it's seeing leaders or really uh, associates at, at all levels um, rise up to the occasion, do things they never thought possible. You know, I was I was actually talking to an associate just the other day here who's in a new role, and I just paused to say, you know, how's it going? She was doing something very different before, and is doing now. A, she has a lot broader perspective, and and I just, you know, how, how, what's what's the year been like? Look at what you've experienced and seen. And she said, you know, it's funny. I was just I was just telling my husband the other night that like my vocabulary has changed, my perspective. She said the issues and the things I used to worry about are like totally different. Like that stuff, like it seems insignificant now because I've had this this other world that's opened up to me. I thought that was pretty amazing. Again, she's going through this this change, a new role, and it's totally changed her perspective and and her excitement and her energy to come to work every day. And this is a, this person is, is, you know, a young 20-something early career associate that is a sponge. And so that really, Sajal, fills me up. You know, I'd say from a business standpoint, I love growth. (laughs) I will say that I am am a growth junkie. So spending the last year navigating and and figuring out a block and tackle and do all the things we needed to do to survive, great. Like I learned so many things, but now that we're back on the front foot, now that we have momentum, and our strategies are working and we're months away from opening Sephora and I have more opportunities as I see a look around the corner. It's really, really energizing and seeing how we're doing this now in a way that the culture is operating in a more uh, decisive, courageous way. Like I, I really do feel like so many of the dreams I had for this role in this company are, are, are coming together. And I don't think lack of energy is uh, anything that anybody would ever fault you for. So I, I am going to move to a, a rapid fire round, if that's okay. So indulge us and indulge me. Five seconds or less to answer the question, Michelle. Favorite brand other than Kohl's? Sephora. Worst vice or best indulgence? Oh my God, that's so easy. Anybody who knows me, dark chocolate. <laughs> Had a right. lot of that last year. <laughs> 
Number one on your post-pandemic bucket list. I'll just say travel. I look forward to long distance travel and having those experiences again. Personal travel. Best retro music track. I don't know if this is considered retro, but I love Journey. <laughs> <laughs> don't Perfect. stop believing. That's my power. Story. All right. Well, <laughs> that's also very consistent with the rest of our conversation. Well, Michelle, thank you. Uh, it's been a privilege and a pleasure to have this conversation. I know there's a ton of things you could have spent your time on today, but thank you for spending it with us and uh, truly, truly grateful. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. You can read the transcript of this conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore, filter, and search our library of more than 50 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, we'd welcome your email at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. If you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights on strategy and corporate finance, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn by visiting the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance LinkedIn page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.